for this afternoon. We're up to Lord's Day 14 in the Heidelberg Catechism, and it may seem a little out of the Easter season since we're considering the truth of the incarnation that Christ took on himself human flesh, but that's where we're up to. So that's what we'll be considering this afternoon, the truth of Lord's Day 14. And as we prepare to to dis- to hear God's Word based on that, I'd like to read with you a few parts of God's Word. First of all, from Psalm 8, which we could just sing. Psalm 8 has this heading to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And let's also jump ahead to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to John. And we'll read John 1, verse 1 to 14. John 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let's also turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 
5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's now turn to our confession, which summarizes the the Word of God. And this afternoon, we'll be considering Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And there, the church makes this confession. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Well, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, J.I. Packer in his, in his book, Knowing God, says that our topic this afternoon is the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. He says the supreme mystery of the gospel lies not in the atonement nor in the resurrection, but in the message of the incarnation, 
the truth that Christ took on human flesh. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Or as 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, we we sang from that earlier in hymn 24, the mystery of godliness is great. God was manifested in the flesh. And this is the mystery that we confess in Lord's Day 14. We can't understand the mechanics of this mystery, how exactly it all works, But when we see what God has revealed in His Word about this truth, our response is to to believe Him and to adore Him. Rather than scratching our heads in confusion, we are to bow our heads in worship. And so as we examine this truth this afternoon, may God move all of our hearts so that we adore Him more and more. We adore His great love for us in sending His own Son to take on human flesh. And so we'll see this afternoon, this wonderful truth, the Word became flesh, come behold the wondrous mystery. I'd like to consider, first of all, who became man, then we'll see that he became a man, and in the last place, we'll see why he became a man. As we examine God's Word on this incredible teaching this afternoon, it's good for us to start, first of all, by considering who it was who took upon this human nature. Because when we see that it was the glorious Son of God who became a man, just how great this distance is between God and and man, then we begin to to grasp how amazing this truth is. Just to to use a bit of a, a silly example for a minute, if I loved dogs so much and that I wanted to become a dog, well, that would be one thing. In fact, that would be quite something, wouldn't it? But if I loved ants so much that I wanted to become an ant, that would be an entirely different thing, to become an ant and live in an ant's nest. There's a totally different distance between man and dog and man and ant. And so we need to understand the distance between God and us, the distance that the Son of God crossed when He took on humanity. So to grasp the magnitude of this mystery, we need to understand who the Son of God, is. Lord's Day 14 begins like this, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God. Christ Christ was eternal. He always was. There never was a time when He was not. In the beginning was the Word, as we read from John chapter 1. Jesus was... Sorry, Christ was never created, but in fact, He is the agent of creation. God created all things through Him. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made, John 1 verse 3. And Hebrews 1 also says that God made the worlds through Him. The Son of God was not created, but is the agent of creation. He has always existed. He is eternal. And further, He is true God, the Son of God, as the Catechism says. Now, this term, Son of God, it had a lot of other meanings when the Bible was written. For the Jews, Son of God may have referred to angels. For the Greeks, Son of God may have referred to a demigod, that is, the offspring of gods who had married humans. And for the Greeks, it was an insulting term, Son of God, that is, one who is not truly a God. 
And so this term, son of God, it needed to be understood correctly as one who was divine, that is, true God. And so John, when he wrote his gospel, in order to convey this truth, he calls him the Word. John 1 verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so when the the Jews read this text, they understood that the Word, it referred to God's creative power. God spoke and the world was made. And this Word was with God, that is, just as God is eternal, so this Word is eternal. They lived in relationship together with each other in eternity. The Word was God, that is, He was divine, He is God in Himself, and He has a self-sustaining existence. And as true and eternal God, He also has the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person, the brightness of God's glory. Well, let's consider that. What, how glorious is God? God's glory was so bright that no one could see his face because otherwise they would die. Think of the blinding glory of God at Mount Sinai, the glory which made Moses' face shine so that the people couldn't even look at that. Or think of the glory of God which meant that the high priest could only enter the most holy place in the temple one time per year and that through the blood of atonement. Or think of the glory of God which filled the temple after Solomon had built it in 2 Chronicles 5. It says that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And one more text. Think of the glory of the Lord in in Isaiah's vision. When Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in his heavenly temple, sitting on his throne, and the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And when when Isaiah saw that, remember his reaction. He was terrified. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, this is the glory of God, and the sun is the brightness of God's glory. And further, God's glory is also seen in creation. We read from Psalm 8, which says, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David, as he wrote this psalm, was was magnifying the Lord for his glory in creation. When he watches when he watched his sheep on the on the mountainous landscapes, when he saw the, the glorious sunsets. He saw God's glory displayed. He saw God's name written throughout creation. You know, when an artist, when an artist finishes a, a painting and then writes her signature on the, on the bottom corner, but at the same time, her, her signature can be seen throughout the painting in, in the style which characterizes the painting. In the same way, God's signature it can be seen in all of creation because it displays his glory, it shows his name. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory, his blinding glory which no one could look upon, his glory which is also displayed in creation. This is the glory he had with the Father before time began. He is true 
and eternal God. Compared to God, compared to His glory, we as humankind are, are tiny. David says in Psalm 8 verse 3, when I, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You can picture David looking up at the vastness of, of the night sky, perhaps on one of those nights when he was out there in the fields with his sheep. And perhaps you can also think of a time when, perhaps when you've been on holidays and when you've been away from the city and you've looked up at the majestic night sky. It's always an impressive sight, isn't it? As you just see more and more stars. And David looks further than the stars. He looks with eyes of faith to the one who made them to see just how much bigger than the stars God is. Because just like an an artist might use his fingertips to smear a canvas to apply the finishing touches to a beautiful painting, so God, as the divine artist, has made the the heavens with the work of his fingers. So as David considers this, he is left in awe at the immensity of, of God's creative power, at the might of his fingers. And in response to, to this meditation, thinking about the surpassing glory of God, just how big God is that David looks down to man, he realizes how small he is, how small we are. What is man that you are mindful of him? You see, when we compare ourselves to God, the Creator, we little creatures are very little, aren't we? And then what wonder, what awe that God takes thought for us we who are but fragile and frail creatures when compared to the immeasurable greatness of our Maker. But the gap between man and God is is even bigger than a gap between Him as Creator and us as creatures. Because, boys and girls, you remember that when God made man in in the Garden of Eden, when God made Adam and Eve, they walked together. Man and God together walking and talking in the garden in the cool of the day, creator and creature in communion. But after that, man fell into sin so that God sent man out of the garden. And now the gap between God and man is the gap between a holy God and an unholy people, a gap which forced Adam and Eve out of the garden. They could no longer be with God because sin separated us from him. And that's why when Isaiah saw God's glory, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He knew he was sinful. As an unholy man, he could not stand in God's presence. He couldn't bear to even see God's glory. Well, brothers and sisters, the gospel of the incarnation is that God's very own Son, the brightness of His glory, true and eternal God, through whom all things were created, he took on himself true human nature. He became a man. The Holy One came to live among unholy people. The one who made time came to live within time. The Son of God has created, covered the greatest distance to become one of us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. 
Well, the Catechism says that the eternal Son of God, He took on Himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. He took on Himself a true human nature. As John says in John 1 verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the text literally says that the Word tented among us. He dwelt among us. He tented. And perhaps, boys and girls, you can think of a special tent in the Old Testament, a special tent which was called the tabernacle. And this was the tent where God lived, the special way that the unholy people of Israel could live with their holy God. This was in the Old Testament. But now the Son of God became flesh. He was the tent. Just like the tabernacle was the bridge between God and man, now Christ was that bridge to connect the otherwise uncrossable chasm between man and God. The Word became flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says that He shared in our flesh and blood. That means that Christ got hungry, just as we get hungry. The Catechism says that Christ was like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. That Jesus worked in the carpenter's shop, just like his brothers. He cut wood and made furniture. He sweated when it was hot. Jesus had friends that he spent time with. He sailed in the Sea of Galilee. He felt the wind through his hair. He walked on the beach and felt the sand between his toes. Jesus laughed. He cried. He took on himself true human nature. And brothers and sisters, consider what humility this was for our Savior. Though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. He gave up His divine glory and honor in order to become a man. As He prays in John 17, Father, glorify me with Yourself with the glory that I had with You before the world was. Jesus had given up His glory in order to become a man. Well, how is this possible? Wasn't he still God while he was a man? The Catechism says that he is and remains true and eternal God. That means that when Christ was was on earth, he remained true God. He became God plus man. There was no subtraction from his divinity, only the addition of humanity. He always remained true God, even as He took on the addition of human flesh. And because He was true God, He had divine knowledge. For example, He knew that Lazarus was dead even before He went to see him. He knew that when Peter went fishing, the first fish he caught would would have a coin in its mouth. He knew the the history of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And of course, as well as having divine knowledge, he also had divine power to, to do miracles, even to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is and remains true God. And yet, because he took on this addition of human nature, there were some things that he did not know. For example, the, the timing of his second coming Jesus said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
the Athanasian Creed says that the Son of God is equal to his Father in respect of his divinity, but less than his Father in respect of his humanity. Jesus perfectly submitted to his Father's will, and it was his Father's will that he should have a somewhat limited knowledge while he walked on earth. He took on himself a true human nature, thus he submitted to his Father's will. It's a miracle, and it's a mystery. Fullness of God in helpless babe. No wonder J.I. Packer said that this is the supreme mystery of the gospel, of the Christian faith. We need to confess, brothers and sisters, that he was both God and man. John Calvin said that those who take away from Christ either his divinity or humanity diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. He was true God that shows his majesty and his glory, and yet he was at the same time true man that shows his goodness. And further, the Catechism explains that this whole process happened through the working of the Holy Spirit. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to become pregnant, and this is why Jesus could also be born without sin. Brothers and sisters, the distance between God and man was so great. The distance between creator and creature, holy God and unholy people, and yet God sent His Son to be one of us, to live in the mess of human life, to have a body and soul and emotions and thoughts and feelings and all of the things that we experience as humankind. And so he knows what it's like. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, as Hebrew 2 says, but one who has in every way been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ lived in the brokenness, in the mess of life, He knows what it's like. He, the Holy Son of God, the agent of creation, He understands humanity because He is a man. The fact that we cannot understand it doesn't take away the grandeur of this miracle. God has tented with mankind. The mechanics of it are beyond us, but our response is to simply adore our Savior, the Word who has become flesh. So why? Why would the the glorious creator become a creature? Why would the holy God come to live with unholy man? Well, answer 36 says it this way, that he is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. This is the reason that he has solidarity with us, why he shares in our flesh and blood, not only to be empathetic, to understand what it's like to be human, but even more, even better, to take upon our sin, to redeem us, and so that his perfect, sinless life can be credited to us, to be our mediator to cross that otherwise uncrossable chasm between God and us, 
And he does this out of love for us. Martin Luther said this, All this for us your love has done. And the Catechism here focuses on, on Christ's active obedience, that he was a man without sin. He was born sinless. As the second Adam, he represents all who believe in him. And so his sinless, perfect life is credited to everyone who trusts in him. And so we can say in faith that his, his perfect life is credited to me, as if I had lived a, a perfect life right from the very beginning. Even though I was conceived and born in sin, he was without sin from his conception, and that perfect record is given to me. And so because I am in Christ, his sinless conception is mine. It's as if I have never had nor committed any sin as if I was born without sin. He covers all of my sin right from the very beginning, from my conception, and throughout all of my life. His entire life, his entire obedience is credited to me as if I had lived that life. Whether I live or whether I die, as Paul says in Romans, I am the Lord's. And so it doesn't matter how long we live. If I never see the light of day but I'm conceived in sin, or if I live to be a hundred and do lots of bad things as, as well as still being conceived in sin, His innocence and holiness covers it all in God's sight. God sees us as holy, my birth, life, death. So brothers and sisters, do you see why we need to embrace this confession in faith. When we believe in Him, His sinless conception is the firm foundation we have before the Father. His sinless conception and birth, only possible because He was true God, this is the firm foundation of our faith, the firm foundation on which we stand before the Father. He is our mediator. The Athanasians' Creed, as we Read from it this afternoon, it says that it's necessary to eternal salvation that anyone who desires to be saved must believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He is true God and true man. So, brothers and sisters, do you believe in this truth, this glorious truth? It's a, mir- it's a mystery, but it's a wondrous mystery because God has given us this way for us to come to Himself, John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in His name. When we believe in Christ, then this true Son of God, then the Father brings us into His family. Christ then becomes our brother. Hebrews 2 says that He is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. The Almighty God has condescended to us. He has come down to us in His Son that we might live eternally in His family. So come, behold this wondrous mystery. Believe this wondrous mystery. And how do we respond but to live lives of deep gratitude to Him, our loving Savior, who came down from heaven and took on our flesh and blood? The gospel of the incarnation, it may be the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. We won't understand the mechanics of it, but come, let us adore him. Let us adore his great and awesome love. The word has become flesh, and we will live with him 
forever. You who are rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. You who are love beyond all praising, Savior and King, we worship you. Amen.